So if you're maybe in your mid-20s or older, you probably remember exactly where you were and exactly what you were doing on September 11th, 2001. I was working at Qualcomm still as an engineer. That morning I had gone in early and was in the gym on the treadmill listening to the radio. And I heard that maybe a helicopter or a small plane had crashed into the, one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Short time later, as the video feeds from the area were zooming in on the tower, we saw live as the second plane crashed into the second tower. And I remember on that day, sitting in my office with the door shut, doing nothing but standing and sitting in front of the computer, watching all day what was happening with the towers. As first one tower came down, the other tower came down. People in the streets running, covered in ash and dust. The world changed that day. The world that day and in the days that followed was very dark. But I do remember one thing, one beacon of light that day. And those were the pictures of the firefighters, the police, civilians, military, running to the towers, running into danger so that they can be part of a solution, so that they can be part of helping people that were lost and hurting. These firefighters, these police, these people saw the trial in front of them, saw the danger and the difficulty, and yet they ran to it because they know that they needed to be a source of help and hope for people. These people, in the midst of a dark day, embraced the trial in front of them. And lives were saved because of that. The world became a different place in the wake of 9-11, Getting to an airplane is much more difficult now. In some ways, there are certain fears that we have culturally as a result of that. But because of these men and women, their example to us of embracing trials, of going after difficult places, we can have hope. We can see the light. Today, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to see what it's like to embrace trials, to see difficulties and hold on to them and grab them for all they're worth. We're going to be in 1 Peter in just a moment, but first, would you pray with me as we start? Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would speak here now. Lord, our hearts yearn for hope. Our hearts yearn for your light to shine. Lord, but this is a difficult world. This is a difficult place. And so I pray, Lord, tonight as we read through your word, Lord, that you would be manifest, that people would know you better and the hope that we have in you because of who you are and what you've done for us. So I pray, Lord, tonight that as I speak, it would be your words that would resonate in the hearts of the people that are listening, that they would be connected with you in a powerful way that draws them into a relationship with you. And so I pray, Lord, tonight as we dig into 1 Peter, Lord, that we would do it for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're following along in our series, Anthem of Hope, you might remember that Dan Goodham, our youth pastor, several weeks ago actually started this series in 1 Peter. And I'm going to be back in 1 Peter. He was in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're also going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. And here's the really cool thing. 1 Peter as a book is sprinkled with these ideas of hope. 
That's why we can go to it twice in one series. And so we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, if you've got your digital Bibles, you can pull those out. Uh, if you want to thumb through a hard copy Bible like I have, it's towards the end of the Bible. Revelation, Jude, a few of the Johns, and then you get to the Peters. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, 1 Peter was written to a group of exiles, a group of people that had been dispersed throughout the area that we now know of as Turkey. Um, and these were people that were had converted to Christianity, most of them being Gentiles, people that didn't know God at all before that. They were pagans, they were polytheistic, they, you know, picture like the Greek and Roman pantheons that you learned about in school, right? And so they had converted to Christianity this idea that there is one God who sent his son Jesus to die for us and that we can live a full life when we put our faith in him. So these people had converted from a world, a community, a culture that believed in a whole bunch of gods and a whole bunch of ways to live to one particular God who we know as the one true God. And because of that, they were exiles in their world. They lived in a world that really wasn't their home, that they didn't belong in anymore. And so Peter writes this letter to them as an encouragement as a way to help them understand how to live life in this complicated, messy world. And so as we read through it, keep that in mind, because we also are in a world that's complicated and messy. And so these words of Peter that we read about in 1 Peter chapter 1, as I'm going to read tonight, um, are words for us as well. So I'm going to be reading 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has, he has given us a new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. We're going to stop there because this is the good news. This is the gospel. Peter starts out his letter to these people in a lost and confusing world with the message of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. He starts off reminding them that when they put their faith in Jesus, when they realized that Jesus was a better Lord of their life, Jesus was a better person to follow them themselves, they were given a new birth. And so Peter says that because of God's great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. Now, this isn't a hope like, I hope I get to have dinner after service. This is not a hope like, I hope I get an A on that test. This is living hope that can only be found in Jesus. This is hope that's vital, that's powerful. That word, that living hope, tells us it is real, it is alive, and it has power in it. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are reborn into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As you might know, Jesus was God in the flesh who lived a life and taught us how to live a life for God. But at the end of the day, we're not good enough to figure out how to maintain this relationship with God. And so Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, lived a perfect life and was willing to sacrifice himself by being tortured and murdered, hung on a cross, taking our sins on him. But what this is saying is not, it's not just through his death because lots of people die. I hate to break it to you, but someday you're all probably going to die. But Jesus did something different. 
Jesus didn't stay dead. He took his sins on him. He went to the grave and he left them there. Jesus rose from the dead. And so it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that we can have this new birth into a living hope. When we accept Jesus, we are reborn. But then Peter goes on to say this. We are reborn into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. When you make the choice to follow Jesus, you're reborn into a living hope to an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. There will be a someday when we realize completely how awesome God is. We will realize completely what it means to know the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're reborn into this living hope that starts the moment that you commit yourself to Jesus. And someday we will realize the inheritance that is unfading, waiting for us in heaven. But there's a problem. I don't know about you guys, but the world's kind of a mess. I don't know if you agree or not. I'm not even just talking about COVID quarantine time. Look at life in general, right? Life is difficult. Life is messy. Life is painful. People get sick and don't get cured. People lose their jobs and can't find new ones. People become estranged in their relationships with their siblings or their spouses or their parents. This world is a difficult place. So even though we are reborn into this powerful living hope of Jesus Christ for an inheritance someday, we live in the now. We live in this place, this messy middle place where there's difficulties and trials and sufferings. But here's the good thing. Peter, in all of his wisdom, doesn't just stop letting us know that we have this inheritance someday. Oh no, our focus tonight as we read the next couple of verses is about what happens in this messy middle place, in these trials that we are in. So in verse 6, Peter goes on to say, in this you rejoice. That word for rejoice is about leaping for joy and dancing. It's kind of like your party dance that I'm not going to do here. It's kind of like if you know uh, the Bible story of uh, King David when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem and he threw off his clothes and parties into the streets. I am not encouraging that tonight. So, you know, let's not go there. But that's the idea of what this word means in this you rejoice you are partying you are excited because of the salvation that we have in this you rejoice even if for now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold that though perishable is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when jesus christ is revealed that's the core of what we're going to talk about tonight because we have this living hope in Jesus for the someday, but in the here and now we go through trials and Peter tells us why and what to do about it. For the, so for the next chunk of our time, we're going to dive into these couple of verses and then we're going to go from there and figure out what does that mean for us? How do I apply this and what do I do? Because I can guarantee you that each of you has a trial of some sort going on. Maybe it's not a firefighter's running into a burning tower kind of trial, but guess what? God cares about every single one of the trials and difficulties that you face. So as we go into this passage, in this you rejoice, even if 
now for a little while you have had to suffer. You have had this word implies that it is inevitable. It's not just like you have to go to the store or you have to go to school or work. This phrase you have had means it is inevitable. It is going to happen. There is no way to avoid these trials that are coming. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had, it is inevitable to suffer these trials. So that. Two short and simple words that tell us so much. It is inevitable that you suffer these trials because there is a purpose in them. So that tells us that there is an intended goal. So that tells us that there is an aim. There is a purpose. There is a place that these trials take you. Even if now for a little while, it is inevitable that you have to suffer these trials so that the genuineness. James actually has a very similar phrase in James chapter 1, and that word is translated the testing. This is kind of the proving grounds. Trials, difficulties, suffering are the proving ground of your faith. When I worked at Qualcomm, uh, I was an electrical engineer. We designed cell phones. And we would design our phones and do all this cool math stuff to get it all ready, and we would bring it in. But in order to, before we could sell the phones, we had to do a tremendous amount of testing. Like, sometimes we'd get frustrated because the testing we would do is beyond anything that would happen in the real world. So we would take a phone, and we'd put it in an oven, and we would bake it to a higher temperature than could ever be experienced in Death Valley in a car a couple weeks ago. Right, And then we would take that same phone and we would put it in a freezer and freeze it to something colder than Siberia in the middle of winter. And then, if that wasn't good enough, we would do that over and over again every day and just see if the phone fell apart. These things, the purpose of them was to prove the phone worked. It was the proving grounds for the phone. These trials that we put our phones through were the testing grounds, the proving grounds that proved the phone was a valid design. And so this word, the genuineness of your faith, tells us that these trials, their purpose is to serve as a proving ground for your faith. When we would heat up a phone and it would fail or break or something wouldn't work, we'd have to figure out what was wrong and fix it. When you go through trials, the purpose of them is to prove where you need to bolster your faith. We're going to get into that more in a little bit. But these trials, their goal, their aim is so that this proving ground, this testing of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That phrase may be found is actually where we get our word eureka from. If you remember the 49ers searching for gold, eureka, I found it. The idea behind it is that after searching for something you long for, you find it. So it is inevitable that you have to go through these trials. You have to go through these difficulties because they serve as a proving ground for your faith that inevitably those will result in you searching for and finding the truth about who Jesus is in you. These firefighters, these police, they embraced the trials that were before them. It was scary. I have no doubt. The trials that we face are also scary. 
And I don't know about you, but when I see a difficulty on the horizon, when I see a trial coming, the first thing I want to do is pray it away. The first thing I want to do is say, God, take this away from me. Find me my job immediately. Heal that person that's sick. Give me the money I need to pay my bills. My first prayer is always to say, God, take this trial away. And yet Peter here is telling us that the purpose of these trials is to help us grow in our faith and is to help us to understand who Jesus is working in us. Now, I do want to caveat that with Peter is not telling us to make trials. Peter is not telling us to quit our jobs so that we can go through difficult times. Peter is not telling us to eat a bunch of food you shouldn't eat so that you have health problems. Right? Peter's not calling us to an ascetic life. He is calling us to realize that the trials that we are under, wherever they come from, whatever their cause, they are inevitable, and their intended aim, their purpose, is so that we can see the genuineness. We can see the proving grounds of our faith. And the end result of that is praise and glory and honor for Jesus Christ. So, I guarantee you, each one of you is going through, has gone through, will go through trials of various kinds, some more difficult than others. I'm going to share for a moment with, of, of our story, and then we're actually going to look at more about what do we do when we're in these trials. As you guys might know, um, we've been attending church here for a while. My older son, Nathan, uh, you'll see a picture of him up here on the screen. Uh, this was taken about a year ago. He was, had just graduated from high school, was about to start his senior year, I mean, his first year at Biola University up in La Mirada. And we were ready, we were excited for him to fly the coop and, and see what the world has to offer. So this picture was taken about a year ago. Uh, February 21st, 2020 of this year was probably the darkest day of my life. We got a call at 9.19 p.m. and a couple hours later, uh, this is what we saw. My son, Nate, 18 and a half years old at the time, was out with some friends, riding skateboard, rolled into a street and collided with a truck. He was left with a traumatic brain injury. At the time, that first weekend, we didn't know if he was going to make it. We prayed and prayed. We overwhelmed UCI Medical Center where he was at with people that were there praying with us and praising with us and and asking God to save him. And save him he did. Nate was in the hospital for six weeks, three weeks up at UCI, another three weeks down here, and then he came home on April 1st. And here we are six and a half months after his accident. This is my family with Camille, Nate's girlfriend. Six and a half months after the accident, and our darkest day led to our darkest period. We're still in the middle of the trial. And so when I talk about these trials from 1 Peter that he's talking to us about, this is not a purely academic or theological thing for me. I get it. I get what it's like to suffer in trials. Our family has gone through ups and downs and twists and turns over these last six and a half months, and we still don't know where this story is going to land. Some days are hard and dark. Some days we experience God's joy in a way that I can't even explain. But 
these verses resonate with me because I recognize that it is inevitable to go through trials, but that in them, God is revealed. So we're in the midst of this trial, and as I was preparing this message, I had this thought. Peter wrote this around 60-ish A.D., a couple thousand years ago. Here we are in 2020, experiencing exactly what he's talking about. What Peter wrote almost 2,000 years ago still applies today. Why is that? Because the God that Peter wrote about 2,000 years ago is the same God that's around today. And so if it's true, Peter wrote about it in 60 AD, we have found that it's, it's true today, then it must also have been true prior to the time that Peter wrote because the same God that is here today and in Peter's time is the same God that's been around since the beginning. And so what I did is I started going through the scriptures, looking at the Old Testament, and kind of trying to get an idea of what was it like for these people as they went through their trials. And what I got from that is a list of questions, a list of things that I wanted to ask myself, questions for these messy middle trials. What is it like to go through a trial, and what do we learn from it? And so briefly, I'm just going to go through six stories of the Bible, and I'm going to draw out how it is that we can learn, how it is that our faith can be proven genuine, how it is that we can get to know God better through these trials. I'm going to have a list of questions for you, a list of stories, just one clarification. This list is not exhaustive. I did not go through every trial in the Old Testament because if there's only six, it should be a shorter book, right? I did not go through every trial. This list is not exhaustive. This list is also not a get-out-of-trial-free card. Trust me, I tried. I tried answering some of these questions in the midst of the trial that we are in, hoping that the end result would be that God would just snap Nate back to us. That may be his plan, that may not be. But as I've learned, as I've studied, and I'm going through this, I'm realizing that God has a purpose in these trials for us to know more about him. And so as we ask these questions in our trials, we can realize that we can learn even if we remain in the trial. So I'm going to just go through uh, a few stories quickly with you. And as you're thinking about your own trials, maybe one of these applies. So the first one we're going to talk about is Genesis 22. This is the story of Abraham sacrificing his son, Isaac. So a little backstory. So Abraham was called by God out of the country he was in to follow him. And God told Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And even more so, God told Abraham that this was going to happen through Isaac. Then, plot twist. Hey, Abraham, by the way, I need you to go sacrifice your son for me. Now, we read this story and we're like, whoa, that's like an abomination, right? Because we don't do child sacrifice today. But in Abraham's time, that actually wasn't that abnormal. It was not unusual for religions of the time to do child sacrifice. So although we're appalled by the idea it wasn't that abnormal culturally for them. So the trial for Abraham wasn't so much in the sacrificing of his child as it would be for us today. It was this contention, this confusion over, wait a minute, you want me to sacrifice the son that you promised was going to be the one that we are going to have many nations through. How does that work? 
can't have many nations if he's not alive, right? And so Abraham, though, follows through this trial, this difficulty. And the question that he has to ask himself is, what does God want me to learn about him in this trial? Hebrews chapter 11, as it summarizes this story, tells us that Abraham must have thought that God could raise Isaac from the dead. He hadn't experienced that, but he had to learn if God promised this son was going to be the one that all the nations would come from, that God's people would come from, then if God is asking me to sacrifice him, then God must be able to raise him from the dead. Now, thankfully, God intervened at the very last moment. He didn't have to sacrifice Isaac, but Hebrews 11 tells us he did figuratively raise Isaac from the dead because Abraham was willing to sacrifice him, and in that willingness, God was glorified. Abraham had to learn more about God, and so as we're in trials, we have to wonder, what does God need me to learn about him in this trial? Next story, David and Bathsheba. It's a familiar story. David's army is out fighting. David's hanging out at home on his rooftop. He sees Bathsheba. He's like, wow, she's good looking. Invites her over, uh, commits adultery with her, gets her pregnant. And if that wasn't enough, decides to kill her husband so that he can marry her. All right? So whereas Abraham entered his trial through God's calling, David entered his trial through his own poor decisions, through his own sin. So then the prophet Nathan comes along, tells him this crazy story about some sheep and calls David out and says, David, David, God knows what you've done. David immediately repents. I have sinned against the Lord, he says. This is 2 Samuel 12. And then he goes and he fasts and he went in and lay all night on the ground. David humbled himself. David repented. And so he had to ask himself, what behavior do I need to repent of? When we're in trials, sometimes it's our own decisions. And so what behavior do I need to repent of in the midst of this trial? What do I need to turn away from? What sin do I need to stop? Next story is Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah tells the story of Nehemiah leading a group of people to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. But the people around there, the culture, didn't want them to succeed. And so they were opposing them. They were calling them names. They were making fun of them. They were doing everything in their power to stop them. At one point, Nehemiah says, we are despised. Everybody hates me. But then he asked this question in the middle of his trial. What does God want me to do differently? And Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 4, verse 9, he prays to God and he does something different. He sets a guard as a protection. In our trials, we have to ask ourselves, is there something God needs me to do differently? In my behavior, in the way that I'm thinking. Next story, and I'm going through these quickly. You have the references. Uh, I encourage you to go back and read them and, and uncover more depth to them yourself. So next story is Esther. The book of Esther tells the story of a, a woman who was made queen in this foreign area, but this woman was a Jew, Esther. And it turns out that there is a plot to kill all the Jews, all of Esther's people. So here's Esther in the king's court as the queen, knowing that her people, outsiders, are going to be slaughtered. She has to ask herself this question. What step of faith does God need me to take? Her relative Mordecai says to her, 
If you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews for the Jews from another quarter. But who knows? Perhaps you, Esther, have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Esther had to ask herself, where do I need to step out in faith? Where is God calling me out of the boat in our trials, in our difficulties? What step of faith? Without a certainty of where it's going, what step of faith do you need to take? Two more. The next story is in the book of Daniel. There's a trio called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king at the time says, you must all bow down and worship this idol. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, followers of God, say, no, we're not going to do it. I don't care what the consequences are. The culture told them to do one thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, we're going to honor God. And because of that, they are threatened to be thrown into the fiery furnace. That was their way of killing them for not complying. And they say this to the king. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. If God is able to deliver us, let him do that. But if not, we still will not bow down. What am I putting my trust in? In my trials, am I putting my trust in the circumstances? Am I putting my trust in the hope for ending? Or am I putting my trust in the eternal, all-powerful, almighty God such that I won't bow down to any idol because of my faith in him? In our trials, what am I putting my trust in? Last story is the book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet that was called by God to go talk to a group of really bad people in the city of Nineveh. He refused, went the wrong direction, got swallowed by a fish, spit out on a shore, and finally was like, fine, God, I'm going to go talk to these people, right? He goes and talks to the people in the city, and then he leaves, and guess what? They repent. They're like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe we are doing wrong. And what does Jonah do? He whines to God. He complains. This is what Jonah 4 says. This was displeasing to Jonah that, that, that they had repented, and he became angry. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said while I was in my own country? I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to repent from punishing. God, I knew that you were going to forgive them. That's why I didn't want to go. What attitude does God want me to change? In our trials, as Jonah sets a bad example for us, what attitude does God need us to change? Whatever trial you're going through, these questions and others, as we look at the examples from the Old Testament, we see that God has a plan in these stories to help us, as Peter explains, to endure these trials, to learn from them, to grow in them, because they are inevitable. These trials that we go through, their purpose is to be the testing grounds of your faith so that you can become a follower of Jesus that rejoices in him, that praises him, that gives him glory. I'm going to invite Faith back up onto the stage. She's going to sing a song that is very special to us. Um, when Nate was in the hospital, uh, Faith, who's a good friend with Camille and uh, Nate's girlfriend and Faith, she wrote this song called the Restoration Song. 
And I asked her specifically to sing it for us tonight because it has meaning to us in our trials, but I also believe it has a meaning and a purpose and a story for each of us. The chorus goes like this. All glory be to the one who leads me through the valleys and the raging seas, who comforts me in my anxiety and offers a hand to walk with me. All glory be to the one who sees me on my knees praying faithfully for miracles that are yet to be seen and the mighty counselor who intercedes. I'm going to ask Faith to sing this song for us and just ask that you, as you reflect on God's purpose in the trials that you may be going through, can see the one who leads you through the valleys and the raging sea. And may you find comfort in that. <laughs> 